Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we got a terrific Monday morning show for you today. First up, we'll have uh, Adrian Dix on the line here shortly. We'll talk about the spike in COVID-19 cases, especially with the Delta variant of the virus spiking in B.C. right now and causing a lot of problems. New statistics from the B.C. Center for Disease Control shows 95% of the new COVID cases in the province are that Delta variant of the virus in the B.C. interior. The rate is even higher than that. 99% of the new cases in the interior are this Delta variant, so basically all of the new cases there. And it's a particular challenge in those parts of the province with lower than average vaccination rates. And that's why we saw those new restrictions in the central Okanagan last week. Bars and nightclubs shut down, new limits on gatherings, that indoor mask mandate back in place. Could these restrictions be widened to apply to other parts of the province? Let's discuss now with my guest, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thanks for coming on again. Hey, great great to be on the show, Mike. Okay, I pre- really appreciate your time. How concerned are you about this uh, Delta variant that we're seeing spiking right now in the province? Well, I'm con- we're concerned about the number of cases, particularly in the central Okanagan region. When we put those um, measures in place, uh, the first measures in place the week before last, 50% of our cases were in the central Okanagan local health region. Now there are 89 local health areas in the province. So the other 50% were in the other 88 and 50% were in the central Okanagan. So what we saw was significant uh, transmission of COVID-19. And most of that transmission are variants, either the Delta variant or the Gamma variant right now, which used to be called the Brazilian variant. Those are the two variants we're of concern that we're seeing. What are variants? Essentially, it's the, that virus mutating. It's COVID-19, but it's the virus mutating because uh, it continues to mutate to transmit uh, more. And uh, so we see that impact, especially amongst unvaccinated people. In the central Okanagan, in general, people over 50 are vaccinated about the same as they are in the rest of the province. But under 50, there's a difference. And, it, and of course, we tend to as well socialize with people in our own age group, Mike, uh, I think. And, um, and so what that means is that uh, uh, we've seen a lot of transmission there. And uh, it shows the importance of getting vaccinated. Okay, we see the new restrictions that have been brought in place in the central Okanagan. Is it possible that those restrictions could be widened to apply to other parts of the province? If, uh, if, if it's necessary, absolutely, that can happen. But I would say right now, it's fo- the strategy right now, uh, led by Dr. Bonnie Henry, is to use um, measures specifically, either with respect to specific businesses, say, or... Um, or uh, uh, non-profit uh, entities, such as say uh, there's an outbreak related to a particular class or a particular um, business and particular regions. So if we see in other regions uh, this level of transmission, which we're not seeing yet, then uh, then action action can be taken. Of course, these are the steps that can be taken. What will continue to happen here, though, and this is a difference in some other jurisdictions, we're continuing to do all the contact tracing, all the support for people who get sick, all the testing we've done before, all the work of public health to reduce transmission. And, of course, we are um, very significantly pushing people to get vaccinated. And we've made real progress. As of today, it's 82% of people over 12, which is one of the highest levels of vaccination in the world. What about the Canada-U.S. border, land border reopening today, at least for northbound traffic with fully vaccinated Americans now allowed to drive across the border into Canada again. You were the first health minister in the country to call for that border to be shut down at the start of the pandemic. Do you have any concerns about that border reopening today? Well, the key word is fully vaccinated. Uh, All the people coming over need to be fully vaccinated. And that will be the case, by the way, um, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, when the border is open the other way that it will be for fully vaccinated people as well. Uh, And just as 
say to everybody, in addition to all the other reasons to get vaccinated, uh, if one ever wants to travel outside of Canada in the next years, uh, you're going to have to be vaccinated and fully vaccinated. And uh, so um, the vaccination is a game changer when people are fully vaccinated. And uh, and uh, that's an important consideration for us. And that's why the federal government has moved to, to open the border under those conditions. But what will be very important is that those uh, those conditions be applied and that the measures taken by the federal government to ensure their application are effective. So you're not concerned then? I'm, I'm not, as long as, again, it's people who are fully vaccinated. It's, we're not seeing transmission in significant numbers amongst fully vaccinated people. So, no, we're not concerned with that. But what, yeah. what is true, and this is what we all have to recognize, is this is a worldwide pandemic. There are parts of the world where virtually no vaccination has taken place. And in those parts of the world, this virus is going to continue to mutate. And so what we have to do uh, as a world community as well is to get everyone vaccinated. When people, when we see those stories about, uh, about certain American states where there's low rates of vaccination, we shouldn't be smug right. about it. We should hope that they do better. Okay, will the B.C. government require people to get vaccinated if they're working in, in the public sector, let's say health care workers, or for some of the other big employers that the government controls, like B.C. Hydro or ICBC, why not maybe set the example and say, okay, you want to work for us, you have to be vaccinated. Is that possible? Well, I think in healthcare, you're seeing uh, specific moves, including you'll see today moves in that, in that direction. We laid out uh, the plan for it a number of weeks ago. Dr. Henry did. But if you're working in healthcare, care, uh, I think it's pretty clear you either have to be vaccinated or um, in the alternative. Um, there'll be testing and PPE requirements that are significant because obviously to work in healthcare when people are in that much risk, that, that seems to be uh, pretty clear to everybody that you need to be vaccinated. And overwhelmingly people are, but we've got to close gaps where they exist there. And, you know, so I think you can w- look through area by area to see the importance of vaccination. I think it's important that everyone get vaccinated in the province. And I like the fact that we have a very high level of vaccination, but What's happened in the Okanagan shows and what's happened continues to happen with the circulation of um, the Delta variant is those who are not vaccinated are protected by those who are vaccinated in terms of the amount of transmission of COVID in the community. But they also tend to circulate with other people who are non-vaccinated. And if you're non-vaccinated right, right now, there's a lot of risk. And, um, and that's why we continue to push that today at Crescent Beach. There'll be a vaccination uh, place to get vaccinated. You can go to Crescent Beach and get vaccinated. You can have a nice day. And there are going to be lots of opportunities like that because we got to raise we got to raise those numbers up. Eighty two percent, maybe the best in the world. But, you know, you know, it's better than 82, 83. OK, so you the B.C. government will be what mandating mandatory vaccine for healthcare workers. Is that what's well, happening? The, the, what's happening is you'll have to you'll have to be a declaration of a vaccine. It's our expectation. Everyone gets vaccinated. And if in the circumstance people aren't, specific steps will be taken um, to, for those workers to ensure that uh, everyone else is kept safe, including uh, multiple testing every day, for, uh, every, twice a week, I should say, multiple times a week. And in, in addition to that, uh, other steps with respect to PPE. So effectively, that's, uh, that's a mandate to get vaccinated. Why not just make it mandatory? I mean, we've seen other jurisdictions do this. France, Italy, Greece, other countries are bringing in that requirement. You must well, be vaccinated. Well, they haven't. some of them have talked about it, but haven't done it yet, right? Okay. And so uh, this is pretty strong. It's a pretty strong measure to ensure everybody in healthcare is vaccinated, and that's our expectation. Okay, do you think this is a wise time to have a federal election in the country? There's a lot of speculation that Justin Trudeau could trigger an election later this week. Do you think that's wise right now? Well, I think I'll leave that to the federal politicians, but I would say this. I would say this about it, that I think you, you can have an election safely in Canada now. So it's not a, it's a, the question is whether this is the time, and that's a sort of political matter at the federal level. I, I expect uh, from all the, all the reporting that you and other people have been doing that there's going to be an election, and so we're, we're all going to get a chance to vote. And it's pretty simple for me. I'm going to vote for Don Davis. 
All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. The phone lines are open to him. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Minister, well, just while we get a call up on the line, you mentioned that we expect to hear restrictions on uh, mandatory vaccine or, or me- other measures for BC healthcare workers. Why not expand that to other public sector agencies like ICBC or BC Hydro, require them to get the vaccine if they want to work there? Care workers is the, the place where uh, I'm most directly interested because that's where people are most vulnerable. If you look at long-term care, what's happened, you look at acute care, what's happened. But I, we can't exclude this happening um, in other areas as well. We have to look at them area by area, look at the extent of the risk. I would add that I think um, it is, of course, everybody's right not to be vaccinated in British Columbia. You don't have to, you don't have to take the vaccine, but there may be some things even if you're not working for BC Hydro or ICBC or the health system or the education system or whatever it might be, there may there will be things that you're not going to be able to do if you're not vaccinated. This is just the practical reality of a virus that is mutated and that is significant. There's a significant risk of transmission amongst the unvaccinated. So, you know, this is the time to get vaccinated for all the good reasons to protect yourself and your family, but for other reasons as well. You'll never be able to travel outside of Canada really in the foreseeable future, unless you're vaccinated. That's one reason, but there's going to be some things in British Columbia, I suspect, that you're not going to be able to do if you're not vaccinated. Okay, what is the end game for you right now? I mean, do you uh, hope, still hope and expect we get to some sort of herd immunity level in the province and the, and the, the virus just goes away? Or is this something that we're just going to have to live with into the future? Well, to an extent, we have to live with this because um, uh, it's not just British Columbia. I mean, we saw in February of 2020, we spoke on the air about it at the time in January 2020, um, when the when the first person tested positive for COVID-19 in British Columbia in January 2020, we announced that the, the headquarters of BCCDC, I spoke to you that day, I think, Mike, and um, we saw a virus that was at that time principally in Hubei province in China go around the world. And so it's a worldwide pandemic. And uh, that's why it's important that we support efforts to immunize people around the world, because we don't live uh, in isolation here in British Columbia. We're a trading province. People travel, people move around. And so we need to we need to get people vaccinated everywhere in the world. And until we do that, the pandemic's going to still be with us. Let's go to some phone calls here. Sam on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Sam. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say, obviously, this virus is completely different now than it was 17 months ago. Maybe in the beginning, it was affecting seniors more. But now it really doesn't matter how old you are, how fit you are, how healthy you are. Enough of a viral load is going to give you a bad time. What's going to be done for these under 12-year-olds who are going to be going into these classrooms with 25 unmasked kids in poorly ventilated spaces? We know the kids are ending up in ICU just looking around the globe. It's becoming more and more common. Is there going to be anything to be done for these kids in these schools okay. this year? Minister. So, uh, firstly, what, what can we do? We can all get vaccinated, right? And that's an important way to limit transmission. Right now, under 12, the vaccines are not licensed um, in Canada or anywhere in the world. I expect that will change at some point in the future. So, uh, and and then, but it would probably be a different amount of vaccine, given that we're talking about children, et cetera. Right. So, uh, the, those steps are are happening and happening throughout the world. How we can deal with it? Well, we have to raise our levels of vaccination for everybody else, um, including everyone else associated with schools. That's the first thing. And secondly, the work is being done to prepare for the school year. I think British Columbia set the standard for keeping our schools open last year. It made a huge difference for our students and for everyone else in BC. It was a real achievement of our teachers and everyone else. And we're going to continue to do that, and we're going to continue to take measures to keep people safe as well. Okay, no masks required in schools, though, in the fall, right? Well, what we're going to do is uh, we're working through all of these issues now. And what you saw in the Okanagan last week was um, when we made some changes there. We're going to continue to watch the situation. You cannot get stuck in this in this pandemic on one position. You've got to evolve with the evidence, and that's what we're going to continue to do. 
Okay, let's go to Rod on the line of White Rock. Hi, Rod. Uh, good morning. Um, there's uh, reports of people just even on the news this morning, just before the break, that were have been seeking and acquiring fake vaccination certificates. What processes or verification process do we have in place, or are we just using the honor system when they come across? Is there any way of checking these things at the border electronically? Okay, Minister, we just have a minute left. Please go ahead. Yeah, there, there is. There's been a lot of work and is a lot of work being done, particularly between Canada and the United States and Canada and other jurisdictions to deal with that. There's always going to be people who try and skirt the rules, right, in these things, um, especially people. If, if you're unvaccinated and you want to cross the border and you're going to skirt the rules, well, that's uh, that's really uh, not very good behavior. But we are um, uh, we do have our own health gateway system here. We have uh, systems that are going to be in place across the country, and we're going to uh, ab- absolutely take steps to avoid that happening. Okay, there's also significant penalties for anyone who tries to misrepresent their vaccination status uh, coming across the border, including fines and uh, jail time. You, yeah. you you bet, and I don't know yeah. about you, Mike, but when I cross the border, that's a, that's the moment you want to you want to be totally truthful in that moment. Yeah. If you're not. The risks are very high. Minister, thanks for your time today. Hey, right on. Take care, Mike. Talk to you soon. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the continuing wildfire threat in the B.C. interior right now. Over 270 fires are continuing to burn in the province. Uh, We saw fire rip through the community of Monty Lake, B.C. We saw ash raining down on the city of Vernon on Saturday. A little bit of reprieve on the weekend with some light rain and cooling temperatures, but... The hot temperatures are set to return in the days ahead, and the wildfire threat continues. Let's check in with Ward Stamer now, the mayor of Barrier, B.C., and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mayor Stamer, thanks for coming on. Hello, Ward. Hello, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Can you give me an update on the situation in in your area there in the interior right now? Well, in Barrier, we're doing okay, Mike. Uh, we did get some rain on the weekend. Not a lot, but it things to settle down. We had a couple of lightning strikes close by. One was up just, just around North, Little Fort, and luckily it's only about an acre in size. And, and at Sally's Woodlot, they got on it, and, and they're able to control it. But I just got off the phone with a good friend in Monty Lake, and uh, he's still pretty hot about what the minister had to say about you know people uh, being in the way when the fire came through. Like he said, there was nobody in the way. There was nobody there to help them. And there's still nobody there to help them to try to save the remaining structures that are there. And he said they're quite fortunate in yesterday that he was able to get a hold of a TOCO supervisor and get authorization to get a chopper in there and, and nail a, a chunk of fire that was coming back and threatening his place, which is close to the lake. Because without it, it could have taken off and probably headed over to George Creek, Creek and from George Creek is Barnardville. So they really need more boots on the ground there to try to get them to get a hold of some of these spot fires all over the place. Okay, Monty Lake is a real difficult situation. Did he evacuate there, or did he did he stay behind to try and save his home, or what happened? No, no, he, no, no, he okay. stayed behind. He stayed that night. A good friend of his tried to save one of his logging trucks, and unfortunately it burned to the ground, and his friend is now in Vancouver General Hospital with burns. And uh, he's been able to protect his house, and he's got, you know, he's got some heavy equipment himself to be able to protect what he's got, but there's nobody else around to help him. And then even yesterday, he had to go up on the range and go up to somebody's house and put a cow down because there's no other support, no SPCA or anything like that, and the poor cow was burnt up, so he had to put the cow down. So he's been a pretty busy guy along with everybody else there trying to save what's left. Okay, was he not under an evacuation order, though? Well, he? yeah, but there yeah. was nobody there to save his house. And like he said, there was nobody in the way. There was no structural firefighting that were there when it was happening. And he was able to save his house, save his farm. His friends' farms were saved, but they lost about 60% of the homes in Monty Lake. Yeah. Let me play this clip here for you, Ward, and get your thoughts. This is another Monty Lake resident, Dan Speller, speaking to Global News. And you'll hear him describe here how he didn't want to leave until he was forced to. Here he is. When it gets too hot and I gotta go, I'll go. But no politician or bureaucrat's gonna tell me to go. And I don't appreciate being called a fool or or stupid or whatever because I stay and save my house and my my livestock. Okay, some people might be listening to this word and say, "Look, if you're under an evacuation order and you're told to leave, then you should leave." I mean, how do how do you respond to that? You know, Mike, I I agree with you. In most place, in most cases, we had this conversation last week. 
And, you know, to put it in perspective, a lot of times if you're in an isolated area and, you know, you're being asked to leave, I totally agree with that because, you know, if all of a sudden we have to get somebody to come back in there and try to save you and maybe the wife and the baby, then we're putting those people at risk. But like he said and like and Rob said, there was nobody there to help them. So that was their yeah. choice. They weren't putting anybody at risk. So it's a different scenario. But when you're in these areas, especially in these populated areas with a bunch of houses and that out in the bush, whether it's the Sparks Lake fire or now the fire down in Vernon and Kelowna, that's a different situation. You know, we're not talking about ranchers and, and people like that. We're talking about, you know, people that are in, you know, in housing and, and, and that you have choke points and you can't get people out in a, in a quick period, short period of time. These guys could have taken off on a separate road and they would have been fine. A lot of times you can't do that. So I know it's a balance and I understand, you know, kind of where, you know, where the government's coming from on that. And in most cases, yes, you have to obey the order. But like Dan Speller, he's, he's been trying to build up his livestock for, for his entire life. He loses that. He will, he'll lose everything. Okay, speaking of Ward Stamer, he's the mayor of Barrier, British Columbia. Let me play a clip here of the Solicitor General and get your thoughts. Mike Farnworth here, and you'll hear him comment here on the penalties that people face when they don't evacuate. Have a listen. There are, there are uh, penalties uh, that, uh, that can be used up to uh, about a $10,000 fine. Um, we have not ever had to use these in the past uh, in this province. Uh, and the reality really is this. People need to understand these are very aggressive fires, and they may think they know what they're doing. The fact is, is that they don't. And when you've got wind gusts of 60 miles an hour, extreme dryness, fire moves very, very quickly. Ward Samer, what do you think of that? He's right. He's right. He's right, Mike. And I mean, back in 2003, we had to evacuate barriers. That's everybody, including myself. I came back the next morning. I was one of the first ones back, and we ended up uh, creating a perimeter a fire guard all the way around the town. And then when the structural firefighters came in later in the day, we could hand it off to them. And then we started working on the forest fire itself. I totally agree with the minister in that those types of situations, yes, you have to clear out and you have to clear out quickly. But, but in Monty Lake, it's a little bit different. It's rural. There's smaller places here and there. And like I said, even if they would have left and, and, and came back, luckily, and their house was still there the next day, who's there right now to help them? There's still fires burning all over the place. There is nobody on the ground right now helping guys like Rob, and there should be. Okay, so let, I totally agree with the minister saying, yes, when there's an evacuation order, you got to leave. Rob made the choice of staying behind and protecting his house, which he was able to do. But even if he did come, come back the next day and it was still standing, there's nobody there to protect it from burning down today. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the response to these wildfires, and you think it's been inadequate. Is that right? No, it's not. I don't necessarily say that because I think that it's, it's very challenging when you look at the scope and the size of these fires. I mean, the Sparks Lake fire to the west of us is now 70,000 hectares. The White Rock or White, White Rock Lake fire is now 55 to 60,000 hectares. And to put it in perspective, that Greenville fire in California that took out, you know, that Dixie fire that took out the town of Greenville, it's 466,000 acres. That's 200,000 hectares. That's four of those types of fires. So I agree with the minister when he says that when there's a wall of flame coming, you got to go, you got to go. But we just don't have the resources in this province. I mean, this is a, I don't say it's one in a lifetime event because it's going to continue to keep happening, Mike. We're going to have to spend more time, more, more effort, more money in building up our resources so that when we have a small fire, we put it out. We don't start, you know, prioritizing our resources and then find a situation like that White uh, uh, Lake fire when I was on it three weeks ago, it was 2,000 hectares. Now it's 50,000, and there wasn't any air support for two weeks on that fire. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, let me play another clip here for you from the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. Here he is responding to criticism of the B.C. Wildfire Service. Uh, they don't put in place uh, alerts and orders, uh, you know, without a great deal of thought. So when they're there, it's to protect people's lives. That's what it's about. So rather than trying to second-guess people who spent their, lot, their entire lives protecting people, people need to follow those orders. Okay, speaking there about the evacuation orders in place that uh, some people have not, have not followed, what do you think could be done better? Like you mentioned the air support and the lack thereof. Can, can you expand on that? Like what do you think needs well, to be done? Again, we have to look at a lot of things, Mike, and, it's, and we don't have enough time on the radio to go over it because... There's a lot of different things that have to be changed. I mean, we're already talking about wildfire mitigation. What does that include? You know, what is, does that mean removal of, of forested areas so that we have proper breaks? You know, is there other things that we can be doing to help 
mitigate some of the potential so that if we do get a fire, it doesn't get too big and out of control. I mean, there's only so many things that humans can do. If Mother Nature decides that she wants to go for a tear, she's going to. And if you end up having a fire that gets that big and that out of control, she's the only one that's going to stop it. We aren't going to. So it's not, it's not a finger pointing or anything else. It's just a realization that we're going to need more resources and we're going to be able to have to respond quicker. In 2003, that was the number one thing that they realized is that a small fire becomes a big fire. So if there's a small uh, fire, just like the one that was up in Little Fort, you got to put it out. you got to put it out now. Okay, last question for you. I know you're also uh, set, to, hoping to run in the next federal election for the federal conservative party in the interior. And it appears that an election is looming here. There's a lot of speculation that Justin Trudeau could trigger an election maybe later this week. I asked I asked the health minister, the BC health minister this morning what he thought about that. And he said, well, we can have an election safely. There's no he didn't seem to have a problem with it. Do you have a problem with an, uh, an election being called in the country right now? Well, I mean, I think the timing is terrible, particularly with all the fires that are going on, not only in our province, but in provinces across Canada. I mean, I know uh, the prime minister's got an itchy trigger finger. But I think, honestly, if, if we were going to be thinking about it re- realistically, we should be waiting till the fall. You know, we shouldn't be doing it right now. We should be waiting until this is all over with. Once we got, you know, these these fires out or under control, then we can have an election. That would be my preference. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods market your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com that's o-l-l-y.com these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration this product is not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the labor crunch in the BC restaurant sector right now. It seems like every single restaurant, pub, bar has got a help wanted sign hanging outside. They are struggling to get staff. Now, why is that happening? Is it because restaurants are not paying high enough wages or... Is it because people want to stay home and collect CERB or EI? Let's discuss now with my guests. we got a great panel for you on this. Ian Tostenson is the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ian, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Also on the line is Jim Stanford. Jim is an economist with the Center for Future Work in Vancouver. Jim, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure, Mike. Nice to chat with you. Okay, guys, thanks for both of you being here. Ian Tostenson, let me go to you first. What is the situation out there with this labor shortage for the restaurant sector, and how uh, how serious is it? Well, we had a labor shortage prior to um, the pandemic in our kitchens, um, but going into the pandemic, it was an industry of about 190,000 employees. We think today we're about forty to 45,000 people short, both front of the house and back of the house. Now, one of the things that's driving that is a study that we did in concert with the provincial government before the pandemic, and we saw that there's a shortage of workers demographically in British Columbia. In fact, uh, we saw about a 30% shortage of workers across all industries. So that was, you know, that is there. And we saw a lot of people, um, and we don't know, it's hard for us to, to, to exactly determine how many have left the industry because the industry over the last 17 months has not been the most dependable uh, place for people to work in. And people have had a chance to reevaluate what they want to do. There is some effect on the uh, EI program, which was formerly CERB. Um, we don't know how yeah. much, but we know there's some people hanging the sidelines because they can, and, and so be it. They may not feel comfortable in a restaurant right now, but um so the situation is really tough, and it's not only our industry, but we're competing against other industries for labor. Do you do you think that wages are high enough in the restaurant sector? 
Well, if, if yeah. you look at it on the on the first blush, you'd say no, but you're seeing now restaurants. There's a restaurant today. Simi uh, uh, was talking to him about in Victoria paying living wages in Victoria just over almost twenty bucks. Um, you're seeing on average a server uh, if they're paying sort of minimum wage plus tips anywhere yeah. from you know from the very minimal side. I just talked to a couple of restaurants that went through their payrolls because most of most of that is captured in credit cards, so they can see it. It could be an extra five or six dollars an hour uh, in tips, or as high as thirty to forty dollars an hour in tips, depending if the restaurant's a bigger restaurant versus a smaller restaurant. And of course, quick service, you know, is generally unexperienced people and at minimum wage. So I don't think that wage is the issue. I do think, as we really uh, get into this, is that you know we're not going to just be able to attract people on wages. We have to attract people. In the in the in the in the supportive growth and development environment that we need to create in this industry, okay. which is something that we haven't created in the past. Okay, Jim Stanford, your thoughts? Well, I've got a lot of sympathy for our restaurant owners and others in the hospitality industry. Got through the last year of boom and bust, on again, off again, uh, and for sure, it's a heck of a logistical challenge uh, to to reopen and reconnect with your former staff, some of whom have gone to other jobs. They've given up on the industry. Uh, so, you know, is this a bottleneck? Absolutely. Uh, is it what you can truly call a labor shortage? I, I hate to use that term, Mike. We've still got uh, elevated uh, unemployment uh, in BC. We've got hundreds of thousands of people who can't find work or can't find enough work. And I think the, the, the solution is obvious, and I think Ian touched on it. It's not just higher wages. That has to be part of it. The, the industry pays wages that are half the level of the overall labor market. So if you're paying half the going rate, you shouldn't be surprised that it's hard to attract people. But I think an even bigger issue is the stability and quality of the jobs. The hours of work are a huge problem, not enough hours and very irregular hours. Find ways to make these livable, appealing careers rather than just short-term jobs you do when you can't find anything else. Do you I think, think that'll be crucial. Do you think, Jim, is, is there any indication or evidence that some people just don't want to work? They would rather stay home collect CERB, collect EI, that maybe the government has just been too generous in some of these relief programs, and people might be like, why should I work? I can stay home and collect this money, and, and that's part of the problem. Yeah, uh, frankly, Mike, I, I think that's a bit of an urban myth. You know, it, it taps into a good old storyline that people have lost the ethic uh, of working for a living, and they're living off the, the government handouts. And uh, number one, this industry faced a so-called labor shortage long before the pandemic, as Ian mentioned. This is a chronic problem in low-wage jobs. They have huge turnover and vacancies that they can't fill. Number two, the CERB doesn't even exist. I, I laugh when I hear people blaming the CERB. The CERB was canceled last September. We now have a kind of patchwork of other programs, including the Canada Recovery Benefit, pays a maximum of $300 a week, uh, and you have to qualify. You don't just walk down and say, I want $300 a week. You have to provide proof that you've lost your job or at least half of your hours of work. You have to be actively seeking work, and uh, it, isn't, it isn't free money at all. And if indeed the problem is all government handouts, well, guess what? This program is going to end in October, and then the labor shortage will magically be cured. If anyone believes that, I'm sure Ian doesn't. Uh, I've got a, a, a nice patch of waterfront land to sell you somewhere down in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, well, Ian, yeah. have you, when you talk to your people who are on the front lines and trying to make a go in this, in this very difficult business and, and this atmosphere right now, I mean, do you hear people saying that they can't get staff because their staff are collecting... Uh, the Canada Recovery Benefit or one of the other programs that are still available? Like, is, is that going on? Like, do you think that's part of the problem or not? Yeah, I, it's, it's part of the problem. It's not the entire problem. I know that for a fact, um, we have a, a group of uh, 25 restaurants that we're working through the problems in Kelowna right now with uh, Interior Health. And we know, I mean, we, and this is data that we're looking at in terms of who works where, we know there's a lot of people that sideline themselves and said, I can, I can do this right now. I'm not saying, uh, Jim, that it's the entire problem, but it is an issue. Uh, people uh, may, and you know, let's just say it this way, maybe people aren't feeling comfortable coming back to restaurants right now. So they're going to just, they're going to now, it's gone from $500 a week down to $300 a week. The program right. ends in September. That's going to help. I think what's going to help us more 
uh, will be the return of university students, which we didn't see uh, last year. That's going to help the labor supply. But I think, you know, and I agree with you, Jim, um, we're going to work really hard. How do we create careers in this industry? Um, we are going to have to put our prices up. You know, we're, you know, we're going to mm-hmm. have to probably take, you know, with food prices going up and labor prices going up, um, you know, what, what are we going to do? If we need to attract talent, we have to have the whole package. So that includes, you know, good wages, stability, predictive scheduling, so that you know, Mike, from week to week, the hours you work, you can do other things, some perks, some education. And, it's, and it means that, you know, it, we might have to raise our prices 10 to 20%. But I think the Whoa. public will still accept that. Um, you know, are, you sh- are you sure? Are you sure about that? I mean, when I take a look at some restaurant prices right now, I mean, I'll sometimes there's a there's a great hamburger place in, in near me that I like to go to with my family sometimes. But man, even just like takeout burgers for a family of four <laughs> can yeah. quickly rack up to like a hundred, yeah. almost a hundred bucks. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, well, I know, and and that's the challenge. And I think Jim, you you addressed that last week. We've got to be really careful that we don't head towards the twenty five dollar burger. Then we won't have an industry. We really won't. So there's a fine fine uh, line here and it's also the line where industry starts to talk about how do you reduce labor and start to automate and and we don't want that to happen as either i mean restaurant jobs do provide a lot of flexibility for working mums and students there's a there's a model there part of the industry model is very convenient for people that okay. don't want to necessarily lock into you know 37 and a half hours a week okay jim real quickly your thoughts and then we'll take a break and take some calls here well, Ian raises the issue of how can we use labor more effectively, and uh, I would disagree that we should just write off automation and other ways of uh, making the the uh, industry more efficient. That's how a business should respond to something that is supposedly scarce. Um, the other thing is to emphasize quality rather than quantity, and, and I agree it will be an adjustment, including for the consumers. But uh, if an industry depends on people making minimum wage a few hours here and a few hours there in order to keep offering those low prices, well, that, that's just not on uh, in a situation where people have other alternatives. So I, I okay. think it's, it will be an adjustment, but I think we can do it. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the labor crunch in the BC restaurant sector. My guests are Ian Tostenson and Jim Stanford. Taking your phone calls on it too. Let's go right to your calls. Mark in Vancouver. Hey, Mark. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Uh, some areas I've heard uh, are having problems with labor. It's not so much because of the wages. It's because of accommodation and affordable accommodation where they can be close enough to work. I'm also someone that pre-COVID would spend a lot going to restaurants in a month. And uh, I looked at my visa bill, had an analysis done. And with all takeout, it was, last year it was 2500 bucks on my visa in restaurants. And most of that was takeout, or sorry, delivery. And before that, I was probably spending at least that much or so every month. And what's going to keep me out of restaurants right now is the fact that it's just safe safety and stuff like that. I know the restaurants yeah. are doing their best with their, you know, their dividers and things like that. But what would get me back into the restaurants now is if I could see a restaurant said, you know what, mandatory vaccines, mandatory masks, you walk around, safety there. And if you don't do that, we don't want your business, then I'd be happy to go back in. But that's what's keeping me out of the restaurants right now. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call. Ian, what do you think of that? The more... People are being vaccinated. The more discussion there is around uh, a vaccine certificate, um, we we sort of hope the first stage is, is that we just vaccinate so many people that it doesn't become an issue. Yeah. But if we stall, I think it's going to become an issue. And if we see uh, what happened in Kelowna spread in BC, I think it's going to be an issue for sure. Jim Stanford, any thoughts? Well, uh, Mark makes the point that there's a lot of other challenges facing restaurants, uh, for sure, including the, this whole shift to delivery, right? The, the pandemic obviously accelerated that, but it was happening already. And this has been a, a terrible hit for the bottom line of restaurants as well, is this big 30% cut or whatever that Uber Eats and the others take. So, um, you know, a lot of challenges. This is a tough business to manage these days. I got great sympathy for them. But the labor shortage is, is just one of many problems they're facing. Let's go to Mike on the line in Vernon. Hi, Mike. Hey, morning, gentlemen. Um, the uh, the situation up here, and especially up on our local mountain, Solar Star, is staffing. And uh, I know that uh, the restaurant up there is running uh, 
they've cut reduced hours because they can't staff it. They've got staff working 12 and 13 hour days just to keep the place open. Um, they've had to shut down a couple of attractions, one in particular on the mountain, the Eurotramp, simply because they couldn't find anybody that was willing to work the summer and work up there. And, you know, it's a good place to work. It's cooler up there. You get uh, food and beverage discounts. You get a season's pass for the bike park and the hiking trails and everything else. It's not like you're working minimum wage or slightly above and not getting anything else. There's a ton of perks. And uh, the other problem they're having with up there is getting um, uh, cleaning staff. So mm. for cleaning rooms and stuff. And they're paying well above the standard uh, or offering well above the standard income up or wages up there. So I think a big part of this is distributed back to the fact that it's just too easy to get free money right now. And, uh, and it's not forcing people to get back to work. And, and I'm hearing this from other businesses up here, not just in the, in the uh, tourism sector, but also, the, okay. also in other, um, in other sectors, okay. service okay. industries. Thank you, Mike. We just got a minute left here. Jim Stanford, your thoughts. Uh, well, again, you know, I think there's this kind of tough love mentality, uh, this idea in our heads that you've got to punish people in order to get them to go out and do jobs that are not very appealing. And uh, number one, that's not verified by the facts. Uh, the hospitality industry hired 30,000 people in B.C. over the last two months. I'm not sure there's ever been a two-month period where they hired more new people. So there are people willing to go to work. Okay, we just got a minute here. Ian Tossinson, what would you say to people out there? Maybe maybe they're looking for a job. They're thinking about maybe taking a restaurant job. What would you say to them to entice them to do that? Great first experience. Uh, the wages are getting better. The employers are going to be much more interested in trying to find a, a work-life balance for you. It's the beginning, I think, of change. I, uh, I would avoid the traditional ways of going to find a job. I'd go to your favorite restaurant, quite frankly, and tell them you want some experience, tell them you want some experience on their resume, and you'll probably get a job on the spot, and yeah. I think you'll really enjoy it. And I think in long term on your resume, it's going to look really good. Guys, thanks to both of you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Olympic Games now. The Tokyo Olympics came to a close on the weekend. I enjoyed watching them. A great Olympic Games for Canada, 24 medals. It's the most for Canada in a non-boycotted games, which is pretty cool. Now think about this. Should more non-traditional sports be included in the Olympic Games? Now you look at skateboarding at the Tokyo Olympics. I was kind of dubious about that one, but once I started watching it, I got into it. I kind of enjoyed it. Now think about this. Video games, also known as eSports, should they be included in the Olympic Games? Now Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, was asked about this, about eSports and whether they should be included in the Olympic Games, video gaming at the Olympics. Here's what he had to say. Have a listen. We feel the same passion uh, for your activity as you feel the same uh, passion uh, for, for our uh, activity. And there, uh, as I think uh, uh, Mike said uh, before, uh, if uh, there we get uh, some uh, reasonable uh, people together and to see what we can build together through this uh, passion, then uh, many things uh, should be should be possible, and we we sh should be able to create uh, synergies. Okay, not ruling it out there. The president of the IOC, when asked about esports, video gaming at the Olympic Games. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest Spiro Curry. Spiro is the C CEO of the Gaming Stadium in Richmond. I'm pleased to welcome him, Spiro. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Spear, I was just checking out your website there about the gaming stadium, which is kind of like a an e-sports stadium, right, for video gaming. Tell me about that. It sounds like a really interesting place you've got there. Thank you. Yeah, um, you know, to put it bluntly, it's a community center, except instead of using traditional sport to bring people together, uh, we use video games. And so, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we did switch everything to digital. So all of our tournaments and events were held online. Um, but we're looking to open up again in October, uh, you know, based on the, the guidelines coming forward from the uh, from the province. So, you know, anyone who's into video games of any kind uh, can come by the facility, uh, you know, get hands on with the system and, and play with some friends. OK, and this is like competitive gaming, right? So you got guys come in and they, they compete against each other and like on a, on a big screen, I guess. 
Yeah, so we have, um, at our peak, we had, you know, 65 computers running, a bunch of PlayStations, Nintendo Switches, big screen, sound, lights, the whole nine yards. So it's a 7,000-square-foot facility, but it really makes you feel like you're in a, you're in a stadium. Um, and it's, it's anywhere from casual competitive up to competitive. So uh, there are typically different divisions based on skill level to make sure that everyone who's participating, you know, is on a bit of an even playing field. Okay, well, I got two boys at home who are gamers, so it sounds like they would love love your place. Now, let me ask you about the. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, let me ask you about the Olympic Games. What do you think? Esports, video games at the Olympics, should that be a deal? What do you think? Yeah, so uh, I, there's, there's there are challenges uh, which we can get into if you'd like, but on the positive side, there's a real opportunity here, and the opportunity is when it comes to esports, the only um, differentiator is skill. And so age, sex, height, weight, race, none of that matters. And so there's a really interesting opportunity for the IOC to put on an event that can truly be a mixed, regardless of background, and only be based purely on skill. Um, I don't know if we've seen something like that in the Olympics before. And so it would be a really cool opportunity to see, you know, males, females, those that identify um, as, as either, you know, get together and participate on a completely level playing field. I think that's the opportunity here. Okay. What do you say to people who say, well, hang on a second, video games, come on, that's not a real sport. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. Everyone's got their opinion. Uh, when you talk about professional esports athletes, they are treated just like uh, professional traditional sports athletes. So, um, you know, they have uh, they have nutrition plans, they have uh, weightlifting and, and fitness plans. Um, you know, there's there's personal matters that they take care of, similar to a traditional athlete. This isn't the old school sitting in your parents' basement playing video games for ten hours a day. They're highly trained athletes that are extremely skilled at what they do. Now, just because it's virtual or using eye-hand uh, eye coordination as opposed to something purely physical, um, I think that's a, um, you know, a misconception, and I think there's an educational process. The best way for people to get an understanding is to truly consume and watch and be part of uh, you know, top-tier, high-level esports, and they'll get a feel for how um, athletic uh, these competitors really are. Okay, so you're saying that there is some, like, athletic skill involved, like, I guess, what, like an eye-hand coordination? Absolutely. I mean, there are yeah. so many things that you can think of. There's, there's eye-hand coordination. There's critical thinking. I mean, you have to make decisions in a split second. So when people talk about hockey, for example, there's always this thing of hockey sense, right? This guy has it, this guy doesn't. And it's the ability to make a split-second decision. Well, in, in video games and in esports, that's heightened you have to make not only one decision, but multiple decisions based on what's happening in front of you in real time. And so, you know, the cross between traditional sports and esports from a competitor perspective are very similar. Again, they go through the same fitness routines, typically dry land training. Um, you know, there are a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, nutritional plans that the, the players are on. And there are actually companies, one here in Vancouver, that specializes in the health and wellness side of esports, and they treat it just like traditional sports. Okay, I thought the most nutrition for uh, gamers was like pizza and hot pockets. No, that's just <laughs> that's, that's just that's a my, that's my that's my diet, not actual. Oh, that's pro your gamer. diet. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Pro, pro gamers. Um, so typically, what what happened in the past is they would all live in in the house together, so they could train wow. and be coached and managed together. And most of the times when that's happening. Um, there is uh, a chef or a meal plan that's put forward. So obviously, you still have to partake in the traditional fun stuff to eat. Uh, but the majority of the time, um, you know, meals are curated. And when there are professional tournaments, you know, we had one in Vancouver a couple of years ago called the International at Rogers Arena. You've got yes. the top players in the world that are coming. You know, they're on some sort of meal plan and the meals are being preset and prepared for them. Okay, I remember that tournament at Rogers Arena got a lot of uh, attention at the time, and what surprised me about that at the time was it was a, so much bigger than I, I thought it was. Like, there may be a misconception out there among people who think about, well, this eSports thing, is it really that big a deal? Like, how big is this, is this sport? So the latest stats show that over 3.2 billion people around the world identify as a gamer. So you're talking about, wow. you know, 35-ish percent of the world's population. In North America alone, uh, over 330 million people identify as a gamer. So this isn't about, um, you know, video games versus non-video games anymore. It's permeated the culture. It's a part of what we do. Now, there is a bit of a generational shift and a generational gap. But, like, you know, I'm in my late 30s. I've got a three-year-old. My son is going to grow up in a world where esports are a normal part of everyday sports. 
So it's just a matter of the shift taking place, but it's already happening when that big of a population is already supporting the industry. Um, not only that, but when you talk about the international here in Vancouver, a lot of people don't realize the prize pool for that event is funded by the community. And when it was here in Vancouver, the prize pool was, was close to $30 million. Well, wow. the prize pool for this year, the event is in October, is over $40 million. Wow. And that $40 million is completely funded by the community. So people who play this game, it's called Dota, they will buy things within the game. And a portion of that um, purchase goes towards funding the prize pool. So you're talking about teams participating for their share of $40 million um, uh, you know, coming up in a couple of months here. So when we talk about scale, it's not a question. The scale is there already. It's just those that haven't really um, paid attention or realized, um, you know, it hasn't permeated them quite yet, but it's coming um, and it's going to be a part of mainstream culture, you know, if it isn't already, um, you know, any day now. So, so the top e-gamers in the world, like how much money are they pulling down in prize money? Like are there, are there people making millions of bucks doing this? Oh, for sure. So um, there are two different things to look at. There's the, the eSports side of it and the content creation side. On the eSports side, um, you know, when you look at, uh, for example, uh, a kid by the name of Booga, uh, he won the Fortnite World Cup in 2019, 16 years old. That one tournament, he won $3 million. Uh, and that tournament took place in Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York, where um, the U.S. Open is played of tennis. And so, you know, he's, he's a 16-year-old. In that same tournament, the duos tournament, so like the team tournament, they were two 14-year-olds. They each took home just over a million dollars. So the pricing is there. The bigger part of it is the content creation side, which is Twitch, YouTube, Facebook. These are people who play video games online, treat it yeah. like a normal job, so they're doing it 40 or 50 hours a week. I mean, the top earners on those platforms are easily surpassing five, six million dollars a year um, based on a variety of revenue streams. So, the, you know, like traditional sport, when you're playing esport, you can win a lot of money while you're playing. And then in your yeah. post career, you have the ability to keep creating content to drive even more revenue uh, for your brand, you know, pretty much in perpetuity. Okay, it's certainly a big deal for sure. If we get back to the Olympic Games for a minute, do you think that, let's say the Olympics did decide to try this maybe as a demonstration sport or something, mm -hmm. do you mm -hmm. think it would actually work as kind of a TV attraction? Like, would people actually watch this at home on TV? Because I think that's the biggest challenge. I'm, I'm not sure it's that appealing to kind of watch it. What do you think? Yes, it, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I'm a fan of the Olympics, but there are... Honestly, 80% of what happens during the Olympics, I don't pay attention to the other four years in between, right? And so um, it's a matter of, of buying into the atmosphere of the games themselves. I think if you're going to include this, the one thing that would need to happen is there definitely needs to be an educational period where there needs to be maybe demonstration events leading up to, or if the event is going to be shown on TV, there should be a little, you know, short video or explainer so people understand okay. what they're about to watch. I think that's the most important. Um, I think the issue here, though, more so, is that, like, um, and, and this is my opinion, yeah. I don't know if the IOC is ever going to allow it just based on um, uh. the people who control the video game and who control the intellectual property and what they would mm. be willing to allow to happen during the games, which is a much bigger discussion, but I think that's always going to be the biggest hurdle. Okay, well, we're watching it. We'll see where it goes. Spiro, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate you having me. Thank you so much.